Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 284 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron. I am thrilled that you are here with me today as I am talking to Rachel Housel Hall. It was fantastic to talk to her and to see her again. Uh, We talk about things like revision and how motherhood can shape story. And uh, I found especially fascinating how writing longhand is her superpower, something that I am determined to try on my next book. I will let you know how that goes. Uh, So can't wait for you to get to that part of the show into the interview. Uh, But before we do that, a little bit of a catch up around here. What is going on? I wanted to start off by making an apology. Um, I, I I, this is going to sound weird, but I actually really love to make an earned apology. And I will explain that in a moment on either the last episode or the episode before that I was talking about knowing where you're going in your writing and I made a cheap crack on Texas. I made a crack on the whole state of Texas. Um, I said, if you're leaving Texas, you should know if you're going to New York or LA. And I said something like, and good for you. I did add no hate against Texas, but you could tell that there was some hate against Texas in my heart um, when I said it. And it was cheeky and it was rude. And actually, when it came out of my mouth, um, I don't have hatred for Texas. It was a cheap joke. And a listener wrote and said, that, Rachel, that's not cool. Um, and with permission, I will share just a little bit. Uh, she says, in a red state for my entire life, it gets tiresome hearing passive comments like that. I'm an Austin native and a liberal Democrat, and many of us get out and vote every chance we can. And we try against all odds to make things better because we can't all just hit the road. Um, I uh, struggle with this issue frequently, but I have to believe it's worth the trouble to try to make things better here, that my little blue vote is worth masking up and going to the polls for. It's good for some of us to stay and fight. The alternative is giving up and letting people like Greg Abbott continue to make terrible decisions that affect us all. This is my home. And there are many, many things I'd miss if I left. Uh, So and it's a, it's such a good note, Amy. And it was one of those that, as I read it, I was like, yep, yep, yep. I was right. I felt that that was wrong as it came out of my mouth. I did not edit it away. And I would like to apologize. I love Texas. I, I have so many friends who live in Texas. My nephew lives in Austin. Um, I love Austin. I adore Houston um, because of my friend, John, who works at Murder Books and uh, his partner, Matt. And I just want to say to the person who wrote me this letter, thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for continuing to fight the good fight. Um, The reason I say this is an earned apology is that I believe that I spoke wrongly and I shouldn't have said that. Um, However, if you feel like, if, if anyone feels like sending me an email saying, I don't like your liberal politics and uh, I am anti-vax and I don't want to hear politics from you, Rachel. That is not, that's not something I'm going to apologize for. Um, I enjoy, I don't enjoy, but uh, I will always apologize when I have hurt someone's feelings by error or neglect. Um, But I also don't apologize for my personal opinions, political and otherwise. So to the person who wrote, I'm very grateful that you did. 
I am very grateful for the compliments that you gave me that I'm not reading out and for the fact that you will continue listening and for the fact that you will forgive me for letting that stupid comment come out of my mouth. I apologize for it. Um, so thank you for that. And what else is going on? Uh, oh, um, regarding my book, Complete which I have been talking about over on Ease Lessons, my friend Mona's podcast. Uh, it's almost done and it feels right. And it's going to the editor. Uh, hopefully at the end of this week, I'm, I, um, we don't actually have a firm date. We had said the end of January, which to me, of course, means, you know, beginning of February. Uh, but I need to email her and see when she wants it. But I, I probably could get it out of my hands in less than three hours. And if I get given another 15 hours, I could probably put that into it, although I don't want to. Uh, and I cannot wait to get it off of my desk. I can't remember if I mentioned last week or not, but I did have a fantastic conversation with my agent and with her blessing, I am self-publishing the book, which makes me feel good. We had talked about her taking this book out and I, you know, there, there's nothing legally binding about that conversation. And she hadn't worked on the book. She had not put her uh, sweat equity into helping me revise this book at all, because I feel like um, she is my agent. When she puts in work, she deserves compensation for that. And if she had been helping me revise this book, I would absolutely not take it away from her. It then becomes partially her book. And she's only paid when it sells, when it makes money. So um, that would make sense. But she never had her hands on it. She gave me her blessing. So excited. I'm so excited to um, bring this out later this year. I will be recording the audiobook after the edits come back and I do the edits. Um, but I did, this reminds me, I wanted to say something that I don't know if I ever say clearly enough. And I definitely haven't said it clearly enough to people in my uh, 90 day revision course because I had a student who, um, was kind of shocked by her revision letter. and uh, But the nice thing was, is that I got to tell her, oh, no, no, that's just a regular revision letter. You're in exactly the right place. That is what the editor is supposed to do to you. And yes, it feels terrible. Um, but I want to be really clear about what a revision letter is and what I am expecting back from this editor to whom I am sending my book right now. What has happened is I wrote a book. I wrote a first draft. And then I wrote a second draft. I call this the second makes sense draft. The only thing you're doing in that draft is trying to make things make sense, make the story structure and the character arc and the way they are married together. You're trying to make those make sense for the book. Um, in that second make sense draft, it's usually too difficult to do all the beauty making things to it. And it wouldn't be advisable anyway, because you won't know until that second draft is over what you're really going to keep in the book. So in that class that I teach, I, I teach people to, to do different, to do rounds of revision. Uh, it comes in waves in a way. And I always say that the second make sense draft is the hardest draft of your book that you will ever have to do. And I believe that I stand by that. That is, that is true. You are usually facing a pile of crap, a pile of trash that you do not know if you can make into an actual book um, because it, you you first drafted it. It is not good. In many ways, it is bad. Um, and then you make it into something. So that second make sense draft is extremely heavy lifting. Uh, it's I think it's incredibly fun and challenging, but it's the hardest work you will ever do on the book. 
and then you do subsequent revisions and passes. You are doing this all by yourself. You are making the book as good as you can by yourself, unless you have a professional in the industry that you trust completely to help you a little bit earlier on the on in the process. Um, sure, you can do that, but otherwise, the vast majority of us, ninety nine point five percent of us, will be doing that second makes sense draft, and then the third draft, and then the passes. If you do those, we're going to be doing those to the best of our ability by ourselves. At after which, when this book is as good as you can make it right now, um, if you're going toward, if you're going to attempt to go the traditional publishing route, that's the point at which you might reach out to try to get an agent. If you are self-publishing, that is the point at which you hire an editor. Um, you can also hire an editor before you reach out for an agent, if that is something that you want to do and that your pocketbook allows. Here's what I have failed to say clearly, is that when the editor reads your book, they are going to see everything that you couldn't see, which will be way more than you thought. Um, you will know that they will come back with a lot, but still there will be something in your heart that hopes, no, you know, I, I think I pretty much nailed it though. I mean, honestly, I nailed it. I, you guys, I am looking at this book complete. It is called complete. Um, it's not quite complete, but it is called complete my year of fixing, failing, and finding myself. And I am feeling good about it because I am about to send it to her. This is as good as I can make it. The very second my finger hits send to any editor is when I be begin to lose faith in the, the, the whole project. And when she sends it back with her revision letter, it will be a major revision. It is almost always, 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 always a major revision. It will never be as major as going from first draft to second draft. You've already done the hardest work. However, this is the first time that other professional eyes and another professional brain is looking at this as um, a piece of art. And their job is to show you where it is broken. And then your job, their job is not to tell you how to fix it. Um, a good editor will rarely tell you how to fix something. They will just point out what the problem is. Uh, sometimes they might give some suggestions, but but usually no. And then your job as the, as the reviser of your book is to fix it using their excellent suggestions. And their excellent suggestions usually sound like the, the most stupid ideas you have ever heard. And that particular belief lasts for about 72 hours. So allow yourself to hold that, allow yourself to be angry that you spent money or that you're working with an editor who is that dumb, you wasted your cash. Um, and then about 72 hours in, one thing that she said might be a good idea. And then by the end of, you know, at the end of the week, she's a genius. She was completely right. And you're ready to do the work. Um, or if not ready, you are getting ready to feel ready. But then you use the tools that you, you have already used to revise your book several times. And you just start out again. And you kind of go into this wilderness now with someone else's advice on how you could make it better. And while it is daunting and hard and scary, it is absolutely doable. You've already done the hardest part. And you have, if you have done revision already on this book, you've already ripped it apart and put it back together yourself, you can do it again and it will be easier. It is just 
scary when you get that revision letter. And what the revision letter can often feel like is you failed. You thought this was good. No, it's not. You failed. And that is not what a revision letter is. A revision letter is saying, here are some places it can be stronger. We do not pay editors to praise us. We pay editors to tell us where we can make our books better. So I just wanted to kind of encourage you on that and let you know that if you are in the position of receiving a revision letter uh, in the next six to 12 months, know that that is coming and it's awesome. It's awesome. But do give yourself those 72 hours to, to freak out. You don't have to take any action in those first couple of days. Okay. Uh, that's what I wanted to tell you about today. Otherwise, New Zealand's going great. Um, Omicron, Omicron, I don't even know how to say it, has gotten in and within the next week or two, we are expected to have major spikes, um, which New Zealand has never had and which I'm bummed about and stressed out about because um, I just keep hearing from a lot of New Zealanders who are saying, well, if you're vaxxed and boosted, um, you'll be fine. <sighs> and that's not, that's not the end of it. That's, we all know that that's not the end of it. We have immunocompromised people. We have, oh, anyway, we don't need to go into it on here, but I'm a little bit stressed out and I'm kind of locking ourselves down because as the spikes go, I would like to, if I'm going to get it, I'd like to be one of the people in the later stages to get it when the curves have flattened out a little bit so that we don't stress the national healthcare system here who has not had to deal with COVID yet um, in any significant way. So uh, that is, yeah, I'm just going to be staying in and writing. That's going to be, I'm going to be doing. Luckily I can go to the beach and swim, which I've been loving doing. And, uh, and I can write, I can write safely at my desk. How about you? Are you getting your writing done? If you are not, can you take a moment right now to think about the next time you will sit down for 15 minutes and do your writing? Got it? Okay. I want you to do it later today tomorrow morning, put it on your calendar, honor it, and then come find me where I am and tell me that you did, because I really, really love to hear that. And you guys do tell me, and I do listen. So um, keep me posted on that. In the meantime, please enjoy this fabulous interview with Rachel. I know that you will, and I wish you happy writing, my friends. Okay, writer friends, you are invited to write with me with us, I should say. Rachel says write happens twice a month, and it is awesome. On Mondays and Wednesdays, a group of us gets together in Zoom and we write for two hours. Yes, we chat a tiny bit, but only at the top of the first hour and the bottom of the second hour. And it is magic. We get our writing done together, writing in parallel play, writing with friends. It's 5 to 7 Pacific or 8 to 10 Eastern. And you can get all the details at rachelheron.com slash Rachel says write. I think you should totally come right with us. Well, I could not be more pleased to welcome to the show, Rachel Hazel Hall. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Rachel. <laughs> A-E-L. Such a, A-E-L. You're an E-L. That's how they'll tell us apart. <laughs> <laughs> I am so thrilled to have you on the show. We were on a panel way, way back somewhere. I don't remember what conference it was. Writer's Digest, maybe. Yes, it was Writer's I feel Digest. like it was. And, and that um, was three years ago? It must be three, three. years ago now. Yeah. 
Yeah, because yeah. I haven't really done much since then in terms of conferences. 2020 yeah. took us all out, and I don't think I did yeah. much in 2019. That was pretty much it. Yeah. 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 And um, and then when I saw your new book come out, these toxic things, I grabbed it immediately. And I it's if you're watching on the YouTube video, the cover is fantastic for these toxic things. And, and even it, the, 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 the oh, yeah. When you take the jacket off. Oh, there's, it's incredible. It's red with the the black bear tree on it. That is beautiful, Rachel. Let me give you a little bio before I um, forget to do all the things that my job entail here. (laughs) Okay. Rachel Housel Hall is the critically acclaimed author of the Amazon charts bestseller, These Toxic Things and the Los Angeles Times book prize nominated. And now she's gone, which was also nominated for the Lefty, Barry, Seamus and Anthony Awards. Also author of the Audible original bestseller, How It Ends. Rachel is a New York Times bestselling author of The Good Sister with James Patterson and is a former member of the board of directors from for Mystery Writers of America. She has been featured writer on NPR's acclaimed Crime in the City series and the National Endowment for the Arts weekly podcast. She has also served as a mentor in Pitch Wars and Association of Writers program. Rachel lives in Los Angeles with her husband and daughter. Um, oh, thank you for writing this book. Let's talk about this book <laughs> briefly. It was one of those books that I'm always, um, I'm, I'm newly kind of newly a thriller writer. My last two released books have been thrillers. Um, and I find them so hard to write. I find them so hard to write because I always end up writing with this fiction. And then my editor says, okay, but put in more stabbing, you know, take out some emotion, <laughs> put in more, more stabbing and you've got yeah. that. You've got it. Your book I fell into not only because it was thrilling and tense and all of those things, but immediately I was inside the body of this character and the head and the brain and the humor of this character. And I, I'm deviating 100% from the questions I will eventually get to. Um, But how do you, how did you make, how did you pull off this goal that all writers have of making a protagonist who I was in love with on page one? Page one I, is it, it was one of those like I get a lot of sample chapters, you know, and I'll yeah. read usually the full sample before I push by. Yours yeah. was pushed by on the first page. Just nope, Aww. I got yeah. it. I'm in. So how do you do that? <laughs> well, first, thank you, uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here and happy to see you again and reconnecting. The world <laughs> is small, so it is little did we know, right? Back in Pasadena, yeah, yeah, it was Pasadena, yeah. yeah. Um, but, and thank you for reading these toxic things and, and loving it. Um, in case you don't know, if you're listening, what the book is about, it's about digital scrapbooker, Mickey Lambert, digital meaning, um, she takes people's memories and curates them and loads them into something like an Alexa device so that you can say, Hey, memory bank, give me a you know story about my honeymoon in the Poconos and this memory bank will have pictures of you and your loved one and tchotchkes and a story that Mickey will write about your time in the Poconos. And so Which is genius, by the way, just such a genius you. thing. And we could talk about invent. how that even came about, but <laughs> she is um, hired to curate the memories of a curio store owner, Nadia Denham, who um, is forgetting she's older and she's starting to forget her memories. And she has 12, 12, 13 memories that she wants uh, Mickey to curate. And as soon as Mickey starts the project, Nadia is found dead in the little apartment above the store. And 
you know, since Mickey's been paid to do this, she wants to fulfill her client's wishes and she continues to curate these memories. And there's something weird about them. And Mickey wants to find out if these memories uh, have anything to do with Nadia's death. So that's the story. And I wanted to write a character who for the first time wasn't centered on my experience as a 51 year old woman. Mm-hmm. I wanted to take um, a mix between my daughter who's 17 and my oldest niece who's 27 and take these young, energetic, vibrant, friendly, um, interesting young women who have grown up in a world of technology, but still have parents who are Gen X or boomers um, and throw them in a world where everything's not so easy to understand, where going onto Google will not answer your questions, where the world is still kind of analog. Um, I wanted to tell the story of a young woman who's so protected and so loved, and despite being protected and loved, um, danger can still, you know, come to her. And you know, I wanted to write another LA story. I'm a native Angelino and I love yes. this city and it's changing. And the location of the store is in the part of Black Los Angeles that is in flux right now because of gentrification. Mm-hmm. Google campus and Silicon Beach is less than four miles away from where I live. And so a lot of those young hires, they're moving into our neighborhoods and things are changing. So I wanted to tell all these stories um, with this young woman at the center of change and what used to be and how I remember things and all the rest of it. And yeah, I, it's, there's some, you know, scary stuff, but yeah, I like laughing too, even in the face of, 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 of danger. I think that's what drew me in originally that, that not only was there going to be suspense and tension and that's, and that, and I know that that's coming, but the humor was so friendly. It was Aww. just is really friendly humor. And I, I can, I can get with, you know, jaded and cynical and, you know, I will, I will, I'll read all those books too, but this one, she's just, she's just such a great character. And I loved being with her as um, I, I, I'm doing the typical reader thing. Will there be another book about her? Probably not. Okay. Never yeah, say never. Um, especially yeah. if, you know, Hollywood would ever come calling that, that always opens up the door to, yeah. but I loved yeah. Mickey and I loved Mickey's relationships with both of her parents. Oh my God. I know, loved her parents so much. And I so am much. actually Corey. That's who I saw myself and my light oh. is about to crash and there it went, but it's okay. My, my microphone it. might fall off at any minute. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I see myself as, as Corey, um, oh. Mickey's mom, who is the one offering advice who knows some things that she can't tell her daughter yet because it's not time and then it is time and oh god now um who's seen things who has her own secrets who who was a you know someone before she became a mom and we're all that we're all someone before we became someone's wife or someone's teacher someone's something we're all you know we are who we are we pass lessons and we um, share our memories and our thoughts of who we still are, but it's either um, split and divided or it's been silenced some. So it's, it's a, in some ways a big story because yes, it's about Mickey, but it's also about a lot of women who um, find themselves reinventing themselves and 
uh, wanting to forget parts of how they came to be. So, yeah. I love that. It is such a big story. It's the got all the women's fiction elements that I love. Plus, just thriller, thriller, thriller. Um, <laughs> lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much for writing it. Speaking of writing it, how do you write it? Let's talk about your process for writing, for getting all these books done, for getting all this work done, when, where, how, all of that. So this is part of the, the women in our thousands of roles and hats we play. I still work a day job. I am a fundraising writer. Do you? And, uh, yes. And oh. not only that, I'm a fundraising writer for Cedar sinai Medical Center, which is big medical center down here in LA where, you know, we wow. have very famous, of course, patients and regular patients. And you could imagine what my life was like March 13th, 2020, as one of the communications writers at a major medical center in Los Angeles. I cannot yeah. even imagine. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a bit much in some ways, but um, all my jobs, I've always had a day job and I've been blessed enough in the last, since 2008 or so to have a job where I write all day. Um, even with that, and even though, you know, my jobs, my day jobs are purpose-driven and mission filled and you know, being a blessing to others, I still save the best writing for myself. And so I get up at 440 every morning to yes, write my novels. That is and what I, I loved. I, I was, yeah. a, I was a, I was a four o'clock baby when I was, when I still had my full-time day job. That's when uh -huh. I, that's when I did it. It's quiet. Mm -hmm. um, your mind is like springy and you've, you know, I go to bed at 920. So I'm like, I'm like ready. And it's just me. I feed the dog. I feed the two cats. I make my Nescafe instant coffee and I sit down and write until about 645. And now 645, I get up and walk my daughter. She drives to school now and see her off. And that's the break where it's like, okay, bye-bye novel writing. Now it's time for day job. And back in the day, I would write at lunchtime and then in the, in my car, and then I write at soccer practice, basketball practice, whatever extracurricular my daughter was doing after school, I would write. Um, now I get up. Um, I, I probably, what do I do at lunchtime now? Because I'm so tired. <laughs> I will either watch some HLN murder show, <laughs> or I will play a video game for my lunch. And after I get off work around 3.30 or so, I'll do some thoughtless writing, kind of like, you know, transcribing because I write my first drafts longhand. So I, yeah. So that's I, wonderful. Tell, yeah. can you tell me details about how you do that? Like, is it on a legal pad? Is it yes. pencil? It, it's back there somewhere. It's legal pad. And I used um, the different colored pens. So if they're inner gels or uniballs, Every writing session, I use one color pen and then the next another, you know, that's actually pens. And this is a question you asked later. Pens are how I kind of now that I'm working at home primarily are how I know or my way of breaking my day job from my novel writing job. I have a set of pens for work and a set of pens for my novels. And that's my separation. This is because a craft I'm tip I have never now. heard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have to find something. 
Yeah. I had to find something because now I had always been very proud of keeping that division clean, day job writing. But now at home, it's all mixed together on the same computer sometimes. And I needed something. And it's like my, I use my little cheap um, target color gel pens for work and my nicer, fancier pens for novels. And that's how I know that this is mine and that's theirs. I think yeah, that is so, brilliant. And, and you change the pen color every day so you can see that yes. like, yeah, I was purple then, and then I was pink, uh-huh. and then oh, yeah. wow! Because again, having having so many other things to do, and because I write longhand, I need to see progress. I am an outliner, and yeah. so I like crossing things out. I liked actually seeing my progress and seeing that. Okay, I'm making my way to that. There is a horizon. I'm I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I need it. Yeah, yeah. It's. <laughs> That's another thing that's kind of, I don't, I don't hear much of you're an outliner and a hand writer for the first draft. That's an interesting combination. Yeah. Um, for for my data, I don't need to necessarily write longhand. I can type right. straight right. into the computer and I don't know what that is, but for my novels, I need the freedom of the page and the scrawl. And I want to feel that none of this um, has to be, I can always, you know, change it in later drafts. It, it, I feel better about that. And I just like, I like office supplies. Like, <laughs> I will go into Staples and Office Depot an hour later, I am finally checking out because I will go down each aisle and say, yes. hmm, do I need yes. that? How is that going to help me? Yeah. I love it. That's like my, back that's to my school place. sales. I've never had kids, but I go to the back to school <gasps> sales. Just, you know, it's just the best. It's like, I, and I will ask my daughter like mid years, like, do, do you need some school supplies? Cause I'll go for you. <laughs> no, she, I have a cabinet in my, um, you know, one of those little roller plastic thing, uh, drawer case things in my closet with all the excess, uh, those writing supply stuff in there, which I keep up. Yeah. I, I can't stop. So, yeah, yeah. No, I think um, that the day job is very helpful in one, well, feeding me and paying tuition and all those things that money helps, but it also <laughs> helps um, that writing muscle. You know, I, I, part of my job is writing executive communication. So that's condolence letters, that's board of director memos, that's all kinds of things. And when someone's like, we need a memo to the board of directors about this thing. I can't say I'm not really feeling it. You know, I, I was, I was tired last night and the muse just is no, I have to write it. Come hell or high right. water. It has to be written in three hours. And so when I come to sit and write my own stuff, I bring that kind of same muscle with, okay, I have to put it out and I do it with the novel it's better because I know that what I'm forcing myself to write, I'm going to get to revise. You know, I, I always write the first draft all the way through. I don't look back. And I know that. And it's, it's, it, it's worked so far. So, <laughs> yeah. So how much revision happens um, from the, from the handwritten page to inputting it that afternoon or whatever? Is there a little bit no, of just clean up? the just... very end. After oh. I'm going to the entire draft, the entire draft. If I'm doing some mindless transcribing, 
you know, I'm, I'm like cleaning things up as I'm typing, but for the most part, the bulk of it is written afterwards. And then I see how awful it is and how kind of far it is from what I envisioned. Because it's the first draft and it should be terrible. Yeah. And then that second draft is a wreck because that's when you're like, okay, I don't know 10,000 things and I need to research these 10,000 things and then kind of put this back together again. And I'm, you know, writing on hard copy. And after I make it's all ugly and post-its all over the pages, I type all that back into, I don't like click and edit into the, no, I type it all again because it's such a mess. It's more effort for me to insert, you know, sentences and words. And it's like, no, just type it all in because then that's another draft. I'm cleaning up again as I go. My favorite draft is number three or four where stories there, um, the research is there. Now I actually know what the story is about and I can go back and put in motivations more clearly. I can uh, make the, the plot, you know, stronger. I can, you know, actually make it into a story. And then around the fifth draft, that's for me, that's when it's art. That's when you're reading it aloud and you're like, oh, okay, I'm not so stupid after all. Yeah. This is a book and this is going to work. But at first, oh, I hate first drafts. I, I hate, hate them it. so oh. much, but, but I actually really love this idea of thinking about doing it longhand because you just can't go back. You must keep you must. going. I'm not going to try to figure out on page 45 of 200 pieces of paper, what right. I was thinking. I'm just right. going to guess like, and keep um, forward. Flipping, flipping, I can't, flipping. there's no control F for finding where you, exactly. I don't know. I don't know, Rachel, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm gearing up to write my next novel. Maybe I'll try this. Try it. It forces you to go forward because you're yeah. right. You're not numbering these, these, and that's right. my, uh, my golden retriever. Oh, I've got somebody topic. sawing logs out here. Don't worry. Oh, about okay. That. I love it. Yeah, you're not numbering the pages. You have no idea where that thing is that you wrote. You have to go forward. And in order for you to uh, revisit that, you have to type it all in. It's like a mystery within a mystery. You are blowing my mind right now. And I just want to try this. Oh, okay. That is so cool. What is your, um, what's your absolute biggest challenge when it comes to writing? Is it It the first draft? It is that first draft because like most writers, even with so many books under my belt, I am still not convinced that I know what I'm doing, that it'll work this time that, you know, what seemed like a good idea is actually going to make it. I remember, you know, outlining, well, starting the first draft of these toxic things and what sounded like really cool. It's like, well, is there a story there? I guess it is, but it took, it, you know, it, it takes a moment. And that's always my biggest obstacle is me believing that I actually have the skills to pull this off. And I don't know if that's going to come in this. No, it's not coming in this book because what I'm writing actively now, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe if novel 15, maybe 16. I don't know. I'm looking forward to that day. I'll let you know when it happens. Please do. (laughs) What is your biggest joy when it comes to writing? I would say knowing that I'm doing something that so many people have tried to do. Yeah. Um, I think knowing that I have some talent, 
And oh yeah, you uh, do. <laughs> as as your number one biggest fan, yes, you do. <laughs> but you know, it's like, yeah, I'm good at. I can't add, so I can write. You know, and that comes in handy. You know, as my daughter, who we just finished, you know, college application, oh, right? Yeah, and all those essays. So you know, the storytelling that that's come in handy. But that is um, my biggest joy, and also, you know, just being able to do this and make a little money. I'm not like extraordinarily wealthy from my writing. Let's get that. If you're not, listening and you think- None of us are, gonna, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's it's a life enhancer in some ways. Yeah. Like it's helped pay for soccer club fees or for vacation. Um, that extra kind of fancy cheese you like, you know, little things that that make your life a little better. Yeah. You know, it's kind of miserable, though, when you you know have to pay 31 percent of it away. But, you know, it's still more than what I would have had. So it's like a mix that this is this is a blessing and I see it as such. And, you know, do I want to be Leanne Moriarty famous? Of course, of course. But I'm Rachel Housel Hall famous. And I remember you know, praying just to have one published book. And now here I am with more than that. So that's a, that's, that's something. And it's just now that I am stopping long enough sometimes to say, this is kind of cool. I wrote with James Patterson. I, my book was on the Times Square billboard. Oh my God. Yeah. There's so many cool things that happen, but for us, a types, especially who are like, what's next? What's next? What do I need to do? What, what happens now? You're just moving from task to task, checking things off and you don't stop long enough. And I'm learning to appreciate it more. So that is, yeah, that's really gorgeous. I've, I've stopped keeping to-do lists. I I still keep a to-do list. I just hide it from myself, but I, now I'm um, a student uh, taught me this phrase. I keep a ta-da list now. Ta-da. And everything that I do all day. Yeah, Uh exactly. Just like put it, writing down those things that I did get accomplished. And I, I'm trying because I'm very type A as well. I'm trying at the end of the day to look at it and say, or at least at the end of the week, say, okay, you feel like a failure because you didn't achieve, you didn't write six books this week, but like, what? Mm. (laughs) but look at all the things you did do. That's freaking amazing. It's it's helping me kind of rest in that moment and not leap to the next thing, which is yeah. really, I really Maybe identify I'll try that. that. We're learning I, something from I because- think you should. Yeah. Let me ask you, um, I love your, love your craft tip on the pen. Did you have anything else in the craft tip or would you like to move on to the next question? Um, I tried Scrivener. It just was too much. It's like, I am using so lot. much time trying to yeah. learn this freaking. So what do you use? Um, index cards. Uh, I have recently rediscovered my love of index cards. Aren't they lovely? I had forgotten. They're so great. Yeah. Um, And legal size sheets of paper with tape that I create like a long scrolling for timelines, which I suck at. And I'm trying this software called Plotter, P-L-O-T-T-R. And it kind of does that whole vertical no, the horizontal timeline like thing. And it's really simple. And it's I downloaded fine, it once I, and it confused me a little bit. So I didn't. I yeah. Didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and as I'm learning more about the story I want to tell, it's like, ugh, do I need to go back and enter it or what, 
with cards, you just scratch things out or just insert it. So I'm kind of saying the value of just the tried and true methods of index cards, Sharpies and pins. And then when you do enter it, are you just working straight in word? Word. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, yeah. That's what the publishing industry word, wants. Times New Roman 12. 12 point font. Point, <laughs> double space. Yeah. It's so, you know, and that's all sometimes you just need. That's the wonderful yeah. thing about writing, but that's also the dangerous thing about writing because, you know, it's so accessible. Everybody thinks they can do it. But as a professional day job writer, working with some of the smartest minds, researchers in the world, not everybody can write. Yeah, not everyone can those... write effectively. We'll say that. But everybody thinks that they can because they yeah. speak English and they they walk around the world using yeah. the tools that we use to create books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really totally good point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let me ask you, what thing in your life affects your writing in a surprising way? Um, being a mom. Which okay, tell me more. I was not a mom type at all. At all. But then um, my first book was published the first anniversary of 9-11. And that was quite something trying to write us, you know, publish, oh, I can't even imagine. Us, yeah, it was a mess. And my after that, um, I got pregnant and we got pregnant. And I in my first um, big visit with my OBGYN, she discovered a lump in my breast. And she's like, you know, pregnant breasts, they're lumpy. We'll just check it out. And I, you know, went to my UCLA radiologist and it was, it turned out to be more than that. And oh my, my pregnancy While you're was pregnant. feeding the tumor. Yeah. The estrogen was feeding it. And so when I was six months pregnant, I had, it was cancer. It was a, a sarcoma and I had to have a partial mastectomy, um, six months pregnant. And you know, it's something to already kind of be dealing with something like that, but to be pregnant and, you know, signing papers that says, okay, you may not make through the surgery and neither will your, your unborn child. It was something. And, but we, we pulled through, uh, three years after that, my other breasts, they found precancerous calcifications. And at this time, my doctors are like, your body likes making lumps. And so we're going to put you on tamoxifen for for five years because, Mm. uh, and I was 37 Mm. and here I am thinking about mortality, you know, what my life could be, what it may not be. And that makes that clarifies some things for you. And I hadn't been able to get another book deal since that first one in 2002. And at this point, I'm like, well, what do I want to do before I die? Right. And I wanted to write a mix between um, Terry McMillan's Waiting to Excel and Walter Mosley's um, Devil in the Blue Dress. Okay. And that became Land of Shadows, the first of mice in the Lou Norton series. And, you know, m- being pregnant, the lump was there. It was just tiny, tiny, tiny. And I was only 32. And so... Doctors back then in 2002, really 2003, they weren't checking young women. We weren't doing mammograms at 32, yeah. 33 years old. Had I not been pregnant and had the estrogen not kicked it up some, they wouldn't have caught it 
because why would they, why would they be checking my breasts? I didn't have oh my God. Like, an immediate history of breast right. cancer. So my daughter, her existence made some help manifest something that was growing inside of me that no one knew was there. And so she and I, all three of us, but she and I especially have this really close bond that, you know, I do so much for her, not necessarily directly, but I want her to see that you can be a day jobber, you can be someone's wife, someone's mother, but you can also have that part of yourself that's you. And the part that's me is I'm the word nerd. I'm the bookworm. I've loved books since the very beginning of, you know, of, of as soon as I picked up a book and I want to write. I will get up at 4.40 in the morning to do it. I will, you know, hustle and do Zooms and travel places and write stories that go nowhere because I love it and it's a part of me. And she sees that. And I I love that she sees it. And I, I pray that, you know, she takes that lesson and that she keeps that part of herself that is Maya forever and ever. And, you know, when we were all quarantined last year together, she helped me in many ways come up with this in, in ways because she was, you know, thinking about her memories because now she's not, she wasn't seeing friends. Um, she's 16 going through all mm-hmm. kinds of things. And we were cleaning closets out and sharing memories and her memories show up on her phone, you know, that this yeah. is where you were last year. And I have albums, physical pictures. And so we actually ordered some pictures to come and, you know, feel them. But it got me thinking about how our generations differ in that. You know, you and I, we both grew up, you know, after a trip, you get tchotchkes, you go to the souvenir store and you grab that and you have all these things that, that symbolize who you are. And all those boxes of negatives that we keep. Negatives. Yeah. I have rolls of film that we still haven't developed. You know, we have, and, and for, but for kids nowadays, yeah. it's like, do they get the refrigerator magnets? Do they, you know, I don't know. Get the Polaroids and all that stuff that yeah. are in your closets. Do you yeah. get that? And so I wanted to tell in some ways her story, her generation story of being raised by Gen X parents who still live in an analog world in some ways, but kind of dig the digital because I mean, that's mm-hmm. who we are. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in a long way, I'm starting to write stories about young women and me being kind of the mom character on the outside and imparting lessons. There's one favorite scene of mine in these toxic things, and it's towards the end where Mickey, um, uh, Mickey is upset and boyfriend stuff and Corey, her mom she's comforting her and they're in Mickey's apartment and they're watching golden girls and eating popcorn and drinking red wine. And Mickey is still learning lessons from her mom, even at 24 years old. And I love that scene because even though my daughter, she can't drink yet, but we do think we do that. We love golden girls. I watch it every night before going to bed. Um, And we have frank conversations. You know, I want, for her to know that there's nothing she can ever tell me that will scare me, blow me away, make me shut down. You know, I want to be there. And so I'm getting to share that in my stories now. And 
watching my characters grow up and having a, 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 a wise woman who loves her right there. Also, there was was, a, you know, there was a moment and I'm, I'm, I can't even attach it to a point in the book, but I know that it happened. I can't remember the plot point it was around and I wouldn't want to spoil anything anyway, but there's a moment where Corey comforts Mickey in some way and then leaves her to deal with it. Yeah. Like she can't yeah. fix it. Corey doesn't say, okay, I'm going to wave the magic wand and I'm going to take care of all of this. She, she can't yeah. and, and must walk away and let Mickey, it was just so gorgeous. Yeah. It was so yeah. beautifully oh, handled. You. And my core story that I'm always writing about and that I always want to read is the mother daughter relationship. So I think maybe yeah. that's another reason why I was just so in love with this, but it's I also so want to point out complicated mother daughter yeah. relationships yeah. from the beginning of the world to the end mom the terms of endearment is always like oh. my north star and yeah. the whole scene and i get it now where shirley mclean deborah winger is sick in the hospital and dying and shirley mclean just goes off on at the nurse's station saying give my daughter the shot and it's like i i get that and but their relationship up until there had been like weird and cranky and, you know, nebulous and wonderful. So, yeah, I think about that story every time I write um, a story where there's a mother and a daughter. Also, your ability to tell a story, I just want to point out for listeners, just came through so well when I said, what thing in your life affects your writing in a surprising way? And you said, motherhood. And then you took us on an emotional journey, honestly, Aww. a beautiful <laughs> emotional journey that we were absolutely with you for the cancer, for the birth, for this, for this girl now looking through photographs with you, like, and people, this is why you need to read Rachel. That's what I'm saying. This is what she does. So, and you just did it automatically as you were speaking. You're such a natural, incredible storyteller. Thank you for that. Aww, thank you. Thank what is the best book that you've read recently? Um, it just came out yesterday and Ooh. it's called All Her Little Secrets because Ooh, I, I have that thing one about secrets and it's um, by Wanda Morris. Okay. And it's about um, an African-American woman. Uh, she's an attorney who gets caught up in like this law firm madness. It's like black lady meets the firm, you know, and so that's the A story, but the B story is about secrets and childhood and reinventing, reinventing yourself and what people who love you will do to help you escape um, bad situations, tragedy and, and life. So Ooh, pick I that will. up. All her I little secrets. I, I, I blurbed it. I liked it so much. Oh, fabulous. Okay. That's going right to the top of my um, one click TBR pile, which is which is yes. always growing. Okay. So where can we find you and these toxic things out there in the world? You can find me um, at any of your independent bookstores from mysterious galaxy to yes. murder. By I the love book. That store. Oh, also I love that Amazon, store. which um, they have everything and they have uh, these toxic things. So yes, I'm, I'm everywhere. <laughs> Rachel, thank you. Thank you so much for being my first guest coming, being broadcast from my new office here. I have been really looking forward to the, to talking to you about this book and about your writing process. And you do not Thank let, you. let down. I have even bigger, like heart eyes now for Aww. your work. <laughs> it's wonderful reconnecting and seeing you again. <laughs> Thank you. And I wish you very, very happy writing and all good things. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of how do you write? 
You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends. Mm-hmm.